looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mmm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch is got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm -mm Mmm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. This brand is truly exciting and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day and special seasonal gift day. But also let's not forget large orders for party favours by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out please feel free to visit littlebeansoapery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansoapery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sends you. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isle. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. This is Deborah Goodrich Royce here on the most wonderful Crazy Train Radio.
our next guest has, when I say done the spectrum as far as the entertainment business during her career, she certainly has. She has been an actress. She has done some behind the scenes work as far as working with scripts and production and all that stuff. She and her husband, I should say, both of them are involved with a great organization in the Connecticut area, which we'll jump into in terms of uh, training and entertainment and just all that stuff. But also she has written a couple novels. And so I definitely want to start off with those. You would know her from films such as April Fool's Day, Just One of the Guys, her novels being Finding Mrs. Ford, and the latest one, Ruby Falls. Our guest, Deborah Royce, how are you doing tonight? Very well, thank you for having me. It's nice to see you on this kind of end of summer night. Yes, exactly. So first and foremost, I want to jump into the books since that's one of the main reasons I wanted to speak with you. So Ruby Falls is the newer of the books. However, I would say they both are similar in terms of the focus would be identity. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I, I, I'm glad you went right to that. I do like to call them identity thrillers. They're you know, since you're talking about film and books, they're very Hitchcockian. And I, I think Hitchcock was the master of that kind of thriller that was really kind of peeling the onion about the secrets that people were keeping. And that is what both of my books are. I'm intrigued by the concept of how people present themselves and whether or not that really dovetails 100% with who they are, I would venture a guess that no. You know, I think most of us have secrets. I think most of our secrets are very benign and inconsequential. But occasionally in life, you meet somebody who has a doozy. And that's what interests me. I want to bring this up as far as when we're talking about identity and everything with the books. And I would say mostly with Ruby Falls, I noticed this. But we also know when I was doing my research and everything on the internet is true. But you wanted to describe Ruby Falls as a gothic novel. But however, it's not in the sense of when you say gothic, vampire sense. But you would compare it more to Jane Eyre. So you had to have that explanation to the publisher. So can you talk on that a little more? Yeah, that's a great question. So the original round of Gothic novels, there was a whole spectrum. Some of them were supernatural. If you think of Dracula and Frankenstein back in the day, those were Gothic novels. But then there was another range of Gothic novels like Jane Eyre or The Woman in White or Rebecca, which came later, but it's still in that same genre. And they had maybe hints that there might be something supernatural going on. It might not really turn out to be anything supernatural, but there's a spooky feeling underlying that, that there's a tone or a mood that is, that is unsettling and frightening. There's generally a young heroine who is in 
something of a situation with um, usually a man who she can't really tell who he is or whether he's a force for good or it's opposite. And, you know, you, the reader, are going along to see what kind of danger she is in. It's gothic in that sense. Now, I want to briefly mention uh, Finding Mrs. Ford, which was your first novel. And what impressed me, especially for your a first novel, that it was, I would say, if I remember correctly, named one of Forbes' top five and also a top 10 book for Good Morning America. So obviously the goal is to always, to use a baseball metaphor, knock it out of the park with whatever you do, whether it be writing, acting, whatever down the line. Did you feel pressure after finding Mrs. Ford was such a success for a first time as a published writer, I should say, because you've done writing before, but this was to go in this format as a book, especially with coming back around with Ruby Falls. Yeah, that's another great question. So because I am a woman of a certain age, I'm not someone who's being published in her 20s or 30s. I think I, I do, in a sense, feel a pressure to deliver on a next book, but maybe not as much as a younger person would. I think getting published, you know, really, I really got published after my children left the house. They were grown up and out of college. So for me, it was very important to write the books I really felt called to write and not follow a far formula. So Ruby Falls is not a sequel to Finding Mrs. Ford. They are both thrillers. They both deal with identity. Mrs. Ford is not gothic at all. Ruby Falls is. So it was a bit of a departure. But, you know, if you look at the body of work of someone like Hitchcock, you know, he did the film of Rebecca, which was based on the Daphne Du Maurier book, but his other films were not gothic. So to go back to that, yes, there was a feeling of pressure, but I tried not to let it dominate and, and just write the book I felt called to write. With Ruby Falls, an interesting thing happened. The first two chapters just came to me out of the blue. I really had not even been thinking about writing the book that it turned out to be. But when they came so clearly, I felt compelled to really pay attention. Now, with both of your writings, I would say, and obviously doing my homework as well, it seems like that you tend to use a lot of personal influences as far as your your real life, whether it be the region of the country you were in or have been in, or just things that have happened in your life in the writing. Does that, how much of a help is that? Very much so. So neither of the books are factual in terms of my life. I didn't have the experiences that happened in Finding Mrs. Ford, and I didn't have the experiences in Ruby Falls. However, um, <clears throat> let's talk about Ruby Falls. The character grows up to be an actress on a soap opera. I was an actress on a soap opera. She moves to California. Her first movie is at Paramount Pictures. 
I moved to California to do a pilot uh, at Paramount Pictures with Christopher Lloyd. So I use, yes, places I've been, people I've known, experiences I've had as like, it's almost like a painter's palette. You're picking from the colors and Finding Mrs. Ford, it's set in Detroit and Watch Hill. I've lived in both of those places. Uh, I wanted places that were diametrically opposed for that book. I wanted a huge contrast in settings. And I think it's better if you write places you've known. Like I would have a really hard time writing a novel set in Budapest. I've never been there. I, you know, I don't think it would be believable at all. So. And, you know, it's, you mentioned it throughout our conversation so far, and it just rang in my head being the, maybe not genius that I can be at times and using your life experiences, but also you mentioned during the pressures that you didn't have the pressures of writing in your twenties or your thirties or, but you're at the stage of life that you are now. And what I mean by all that, that long winded portion of a question is we could sit here right now and have three, five, 10 women of a certain age group, a certain whatever, same time period of life and have had similar experiences kids, sex, relationships, this, that, you know what I mean? And nobody's want your story is going to be different from the other women in the group or, you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. everybody, everybody knows this stuff that you're at, at a certain stage of your life, but everybody's story is going to be different. So that's why I appreciate that you are using a personal influence. I think it, to your point, the more specific you are, it weirdly becomes more universal. Uh, it's a paradox because I think if you try to write in vague general ways about something, uh, 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 okay, I went through a divorce. It was very painful. If I were going to write about that <clears throat> and I told very specific stories, I think it would be more relatable to other people, even if they didn't have the exact story I had. It just becomes more real and the emotional flavor comes through more clearly when you're specific. Exactly. And like I said, everybody would understand who've been yeah. at those spots, whatever the topic we would discuss. But like you said, everybody's going to have different stories based on that topic. But the thing I appreciate it too, and I mentioned the theater stuff you do in Connecticut with your husband. And this gentleman, who I was an absolute fan of, who would pop in for you a couple of times a year, but encouraged you to write Gene Wilder, who was another Connecticut-based gentleman. How much would you say Gene meant to you behind the scenes, not only what you were trying to do, what you and your husband do, but go in this direction to writing? Well, Gene Wilder was very influential. Let's go back in time. I was and remain one of his biggest fans ever. I raised two girls and we watched the movie Young Frankenstein so many times. 
that there was a moment after my first husband and I were divorced and my daughters were on a plane to go to LA to see him and they're sitting in their seats, I guess, doing the lines of young Frankenstein back and forth and laughing so much that the stewardess couldn't stop laughing. She thought it was so funny. So that's how much we love Gene Wilder. <clears throat> So when he got involved with the Avon, so the Avon is a beautiful 1939 cinema in Stamford, Connecticut that had been closed. We came along, restored it, reopened it. And Gene was living there with his beautiful wife, Karen. Uh, he was married to her from the time he was married to the time he was died. I, time he died, I think it was more than 30 years. <clears throat> but he, he and Karen, lived in the house that uh, Jean had inherited from Gilda Radner. She had this old farmhouse in the north of Stanford, quite beautiful. Anyway, he would come to the Avon three times every fall to talk about movies. And he always would present two classic films and then one of his own. And we had to have security for the night it was one of his own. For the classic films, not so much because it's hard to get people to show up for old movies, even with Gene Wilder. We were full, but we weren't kind of, you know, barricading the doors. <clears throat> so what happened was we had an email correspondence and he said to me at one point, are you a writer? I think you're a writer. And I said, yes, you know, I've been writing. I, I belong to writing groups. I wrote a screenplay. I got a grant for this screenplay. And then I put it aside. And so he offered to read it and he was very encouraging. And then every time I would see him after that, he would say, are you writing? I hope you're writing. You should be writing. So this, there was this magic moment in 2014 where my youngest child uh, graduated from college, got off in the world. And I thought, if I'm ever gonna do this, in a serious way, now is the time. And that's when I really committed myself to writing. But would you say between, was it more so his kick in the tuchus or where you were in your life with, okay, I'm going to be an empty nester. Would you say it was a mix of both or there was one led more to the other? I'd say it was a mix of both because I, I don't know if I would have ever done it if I hadn't had his encouragement. And also, the other thing, I was involved with two writing groups and I had been for at least 10 years. And in these writing groups, I, I started to see what people liked about my writing, what they responded to. These were other writers. So that was really confidence forming. So I think both of those things, his encouragement and these long years of, of writing, 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 helped me to really understand how I express myself. It, you know, you think you know how you express yourself, but I think when you start writing, you're not as sure or maybe not as confident. So I had more confidence by then. Well, obviously, like I said, your career has spanned several different forms of entertainment. But before we get into the acting, I'm curious to know, you had, if I read this right, started to do some, being a reader, I guess is the best way to describe it, at a studio canal over in France as, for English language uh, scripts. So then you 
ended up going over to Miramax when you came back to the States and continuing that with script development. How big of a difference is that when you're dealing with scripts compared to formatting things for books? It's a great question. I don't like writing screenplays. I don't think it's my skill set. Screenplays, you know, they're structured very differently. They're they're laid out in a certain way that you have to follow. And you're saying things, the description will never be seen on the screen. So really everything that comes through to the audience of a movie has to come through in what is seen visually, and what is heard in the dialogue. You can't, you know, blather on with description, not that you should (laughs) blather on with description in a novel, but there's really no place for it in a screenplay. Uh, But I do think those years of reading scripts for a living, of editing other writers' works, really, that was like my writing school, uh, the years that I spent doing that. Makes a lot of sense. So, obviously, as far as the acting side is concerned, some people would say your big break would be because of the role of Sylvia or Silver Kane on All My Children. So, All My Children was a classic for many, many years. And I don't know where the status of soap operas are today because I know there was a kind of a Evan flow several years ago. So what was it for you? Now was all my children, one of those programs, I should say that started off on radio, then went to TV. No, those were the earlier ones. Those were, I I forget maybe like edge of night. Those shows, the reason they were called soap operas is they were sponsored by Procter and Gamble. And they, one of the big products of Procter and Gamble was different kinds of soaps. So their advertising sponsorship came from soaps. Um, All My Children started in 1970 on television. It was always on ABC. So it was there for 40 years. It's gone now. There are only three soap operas left, and they're all in California. There used to be a lot of them. I would say a dozen of them in New York City. And they were really a great acting job often for actors who were just getting started and actors who were in the later years of their careers. You would see the up and coming ones. And you'd see like on All My Children, uh, Ruth Warwick had the role of a matriarch and she'd been in Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. She played his wife. So she was a woman of a certain age. I don't know, I don't know where she was in relation to my age now, but it was a great gig. She lived on Park Avenue. She had a nice apartment. She worked maybe one day a week. Uh, She didn't have a super busy storyline. So it was a terrific job for actors in that stage. Um, Oh, my children was always on television. By the time I was there, it was no longer live. I was there in 82 and 83. So it was taped. It was shot two weeks in advance of the air date. And it was shot in an enormous, almost uh, big soundstage where the sets 
were all around the perimeter of the room and we shot it in three camera video. So these video cameras had wheels and they would go to whatever set was being done. Um, so you had, you know, this character's bedroom, which was next to that character's living room, which was next to another character's uh, diner, etc., all going around the room. A little different from film or nighttime television, like the sitcoms I did, that was more of a proscenium stage that had a live audience. So a lot of the sitcoms, at least in the 80s and early 90s, had a live audience. I suspect they still do. And then well, pre-COVID, I should we should probably say. Well, there's that. Film was often location work, some studio work, but very often location work. Well, so it was three very different ways of, of working. Well, you mentioned that with the taped, all my children during your time there was taped compared to maybe doing shows that have a live audience. Was that a different feel for you in terms of where the tape stuff you could go? Okay, whatever happens, happens. You can redo it where in front of a live audience, even though there might not have been the internet at the time, there's more pressure not to flub up. Well, but even those were taped. The live audience was there, but it wasn't going live to television at that moment by the time I came along. So it was I live heard, to tape then. That's exactly right. I think there are very few, maybe Saturday Night Live does that. Maybe the nighttime talk shows do it. Uh, they do, the talk shows do it. So. But, right, but the even, like I did a crazy sitcom with Julia Louis-Dreyfus called Day by Day. It was a show in which she played a woman. I don't know why. Her character was living with a family that had a daycare in their house, but she, she wasn't the mother in that family. Anyway, we did this crazy show where she was going to her high school reunion and she didn't have a date. So she had to grab the teenage boy in the family that she lived with to take to this high school reunion. So she was supposedly a 28 year old woman, but her date was some 16 year old kid and I was her rival. So we had this, her rival back from high school. So there we are at the reunion and we have a dance off. So you can imagine doing something like that with her cause she's so funny. So she and her date would do a little dance move and my date and I would do a dance move and it became this competition, but it was comedic. Yeah. What a funny, cause you bring that up about the dancing. I don't know how many people realize who are familiar with your work and everything, but during your education years in college and such, there was some dance training as well. So was that right. a minor or? Yeah, I minored in dance and I danced in a film. So I was in college near Cleveland and a movie came to town with Frank Langella and Tom Hulse. It was a United Artist picture called Those Lips, Those Eyes. And I drove myself down there and was hired as a background dancer in one of the numbers. It was a movie about summer stock theater. So I did my little background dancing uh, with a whole bunch of other young women. And the choreographer was very friendly. And I, 
<laughs> I was very literal because I'm from the Midwest. And he kept saying, you should come to New York and audition for me. And I thought he meant it. So I finished college. I'm back in Michigan. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm working in an office and I pick up a copy of Variety, the old theatrical publication in the big format. And I'm going through the pages and they're in the back where they have all the audition notices. It says he's holding auditions at the Minskoff Theater in New York City. So I call the Minskoff Theater. It takes forever to get him on the phone. He obviously doesn't want to hear from me. And I'm like, hi, this is Deborah Goodrich. You said I should come audition for you. And his position was, uh, yeah, um, I can't really guarantee you anything. So I came to New York the next day. I went to the Minskov Theater. I auditioned for him and I didn't get the part. But I'll tell you the really weird part of this. This year, I got a call from my publisher in January. So it was complete lockdown. And my book was coming out. Ruby Falls was coming out in April or in May. And he said, would you like to take a billboard in Times Square, an electronic three screen billboard? Because the price had dropped to almost nothing. And he had to ask me because at the end of the day, you know, the writer pays for everything because it comes off the profits. So when I heard, you know, it went from this sky high price to this ridiculously low price. And I thought, I don't know when I'll ever have that opportunity again. So yes, we did it. So I showed up at the end of April at the door of the Minskov Theater, 1515 Broadway. And it was the weirdest, most powerful full circle feeling. So we're talking from 1980 to 2021 the same doorway. And, you know, here we're going along with our lives and we never know, you know, are things going well or are they going poorly? If I could have been a little voice from above to say to my younger self, you know, listen, little girl, this is not going to work out for you today, this audition, but don't worry, just wait several decades. You'll be back here with huge billboards above this doorway. Uh, I never would have believed it, but it was very moving for me that day this year. Rightfully so, where it comes full circle for you, where the audition didn't work out, but 40 years later, whatever the math is, you're standing in that same doorway looking at something you did. Kind of crazy. I could, I can't imagine how fulfilling that is. That, you know, yeah. that whole full circle there. It was. And I love to tell that story to younger people because wherever you are in your life, you're so deep in it. You, you really can't always see the forest for the trees. You just can't. And you don't know what's coming and you don't know where it's leading. And for those lucky enough to live a long time. And I, I, I acknowledge that there's a fair degree of luck involved. Mm. Boy, it can be pretty cool when you think, huh. If I'd only known. Then what it's funny, we all say that no matter what it is. If I known then what I know now. Yes. Whatever the topic is. Whatever it is. But I'm curious with that moment. Did your daughters or anybody close to you go with you to 
to see this, would you? And partake in that moment? That's a beautiful question. Not my daughter's but several of my closest girlfriends, my daughters couldn't go. One of them has a baby. One of them, I was out in California. We weren't really completely out of lockdown. So I had one, two, three, four, five of six of my best girlfriends. So it was really fun. Yeah. As long as you had somebody. Yeah. As long as you had somebody there with you to take in that moment. That's great. And it was a very strange moment, too, because all the Broadway theaters were dark. Times Square was very quiet. Uh, There was a reason they were not charging much for those billboards. But we've tried to capitalize on social media. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? Yeah. But on a personal note there, you mentioned a grandbaby. I got to ask, how fun is that for you? where you can have fun with the child and then go, here you go. See you later. It's the most fun ever. So I have some friends in the writing world who are very successful while they are raising their children and hats off to them. For me, I always worked raising my children, but I was not able to really devote myself so completely to something like writing, which is a very solitary activity, a very deep dive for hours and hours and hours. So having a granddaughter now, uh, we spent several weeks together recently this summer. And I thought, God, I adore her, but I completely can see why I wasn't able to write books while I was raising kids. Because, you know, just when I'm sitting to type, you know, she's knocking on my door (laughs) to visit and she's two. So you can't say no. Exactly. But Well, it's funny. And I guess doing what you did as far as uh, with script development and such, how was that being able to do that kind of work, but still have young kids? Because I know the birth of your first daughter, then a writer strike put a damper on the acting career. So which led you to the direction you went. You really did your homework. So it's interesting, you know, before, before I got pregnant with Alexandra, it was a moment where my agent had told me, you you don't do any more TV. You're not going to do any more small movies. I was screen testing for big pictures. I screen tested with Rob Lowe for About Last Night. It was a very small group of actresses. It was Demi Moore, Phoebe Cates, Diane Lane, Mariel Hemingway, and me. And that was the, you know, my agent said, that's the direction you're going in. I got married, got pregnant, had a baby. There was a writer's strike. And it, it was like, I lost my stride. I lost my interest. It was an almost now two-year period of when you add the a year and a half, the pregnancy to the eight-month writer's strike. So when I moved to France, I did go back to acting, but it just wasn't the same after all that. And having children, first one, then the other, and living in LA, and I just kind of didn't have the passion for it that I had had. And with the work I did then in the 90s, you know, just kind of falling into the reading and then the editing job at Miramax, it 
it was very formative. I mean, when you're really working on the work of other writers, like trying to help them make their work the best it can be, it really crystallizes your thinking about what works and what doesn't. Makes perfect sense. Well, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people would know the acting stuff, such as April Fool's Day and just one of the guys. But I was thinking about this just sitting here, and it happened right after I talked to my two-year-old nephew who went to video call me and see my cat. Whole another story. But with just one of the guys, and you can take that for what it is, you know, the movie and such. But I was thinking along the lines of looking at it, and we can do this with any project or anything we've done in our lives. From the perspective of 2021 compared to whatever that thing happened. But do you think just one of the guys will be looked at or even made in 2021 because of the different serious topics, whether it be transgender or this, that, you know, I mean, just the different, what we see in a 2021 perspective compared to what it was made, if that makes sense. That is an excellent question. So just one of the guys, the premise is, <clears throat> for people who don't know it, uh, a high school girl, uh, her journalism paper is rejected for a big award she wants to win. And she starts to, she comes to believe it's because she's female. So through a series of circumstances, she ends up deciding to dress as a boy and go to another school. And at the end, she submits a paper, which is, of course, accepted for the award. But it's not the only reason it's accepted for the award, not because she submits it as a boy. It's because she changes. She actually writes about something that's very real and meaningful to her. So that's a good question. Would we still find it funny, the idea, the comedy of someone a female dressing as a male. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a tricky question right now because we are rightly <clears throat> looking at these issues uh, uh, to be more fair to people who have felt marginalized, and that's correct and important. And I don't know where the needle will settle in terms of humor. Because I think about that not just with that question, but. I am a huge fan of Mel Brooks, such as Young Frankenstein that you mentioned, Blazing Saddles, you know, just different things that were done in the sense of comedy. Even though they do touch on certain topics, you go, you cringe going, I don't think they can make it. Even though it was done in humor, I don't know if they could do some of these things or touch on well, some of these without... Sending a PC police. Yeah. In stand-up comedy, you really can't be sensitive if you're sitting in the audience because stand-up comics historically have gone for racial stereotypes, gender stereotypes, ethnic stereotypes, uh, age stereotypes, weight stereotypes. Most stand-ups will just go for it. In, in the audience. I don't know how, I haven't seen stand-up comedy in a long while, but you kind of had to have a thick skin if you yeah. put yourself in that seat because you might get picked on. 
I don't know how that's regarded now. Yeah, it's. I would agree with you because I also like a lot of the. I'm starting to watch some of the newer, like I like, as far as the standups, an Amy Schumer, a Chris Rock, a. You know, you go through the list of people who are active, Dave Chappelle, and yeah, you're going to touch on some subjects. You got to have some thick skin, but you know what I'm seeing? You get these critics and whatever it is, whether it be film or stand up, they're going to jump on, you know, the topics you touch on, even though you doing it in a humorous manner. So, like you said, I don't know where that needle is going to fall. For sure. Well, we're living in very hair trigger times. And I think we're living in a moment where people can <clears throat> fly into, you know, kind of a mob hysteria or mob rage without maybe one side or the other really knowing the whole story of what's going on. So it's it's fascinating to see it all going on, not always in a good way. <laughs> yeah. And that's like that. I, what do those kids say nowadays with the memes? The pop, you sit, you see people sitting back eating popcorn, just watching the uh, cluster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The other one I want to bring up is April Fool's Day. Now, what's your perspective? And I know you went for a good chunk of time from when you made it to when you actually saw it again. So what's your perspective on that film from the 80s when it was made to where we sit in more recent times? I think it's a really naturally made ensemble picture. I think Fred Walton, he chose his actors well and he got out of his actors very natural performances. I think you really do get the feeling <clears throat> that it's a bunch of people who know each other. Anyway, so I think the film holds up well. This year, The Hollywood Reporter um, did a retrospective listing of films of their 100 years of life, because okay. they came out 100 years ago, Hollywood Reporter magazine. And they included April Fool's Day for 1986 as an underrated film of the time. That's interesting to hear. But there was also, and I was listening a little bit to a public viewing Q&A that you had done with Amy Steele and whatnot. And you were talking about an alternate ending. So can you maybe elaborate on what yeah, there was, was a longer ending. So <clears throat> how it went in the alternate ending, and we shot the whole thing. We, you realize that uh, Muffy's character has staged this all as an elaborate prank to create an inn that she's going to run at this house with pranks. <clears throat> you see all of us leaving the island on the ferry. We formulate a plan to go back and play a prank on her. We go back to the island, stage this prank. It involves a scene that was one of the hardest I've ever shot where I'm running through a dark forest and I have to keep falling in this pond in the dark that had these huge water spiders on it. 
And so that was really the alternate ending, everybody going back to the island. And I think Paramount Pictures just cut it short <clears throat> and did a shorter ending. Yeah, because you were talking about that with Amy and everybody on stage. That right. <clears throat> where, But if I heard it correctly, I don't remember if it was Amy or yourself or whoever mentioned it, that you guys only saw the day's work on the script. Does that... Maybe not so much with that project, but in projects in general as an actress. No, we want to see the whole, whole thing. We saw the whole screenplay. Okay. Yeah. So I misunderstood uh, I that. I think uh, maybe that happened with, I don't know, directors like Stanley Kubrick uh, or somebody like that, <clears throat> where they only released certain pages. No, we saw the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm guessing you would want to see the whole script to know what you're getting into. Correct. Sure. Yeah, I think because, you know, your your reputation is on the line. So you don't want something that turns in a direction that you're really uncomfortable with. Yeah, because like and that's a whole other subject, because I know there's certain things, legalities, I should say, as far as when you're dealing with actors and actresses, that if you're asking them or want to ask them to do certain things in the film. So whether it's yeah. kissing or nudity or whatever, there's different things do you have to and like like you just said there, it leads to what am I comfortable with in doing? So and that's really the big question. I was not comfortable with nudity, so I never did nudity. I was offered a film called uh Scream for Help by a director called Michael Winner. And I, there was nudity. It was non-negotiable for him. I didn't want to do it, so I just turned it down. Makes perfect sense. But I want to wrap up here, and I so appreciate the time that we've spent talking. Ruby Falls is the latest book. Well, there's another thing I want to mention with the closing. But Ruby Falls, where's the best spot for people to grab the book if they choose to do so? So Amazon has both of my books, Ruby Falls and Finding Mrs. Ford. If you're a big supporter of independent bookstores and you don't have one near you, you can order on bookshop.org. They will send it to you also, you know, online order and the proceeds go to independent bookstores all over the country. So either Amazon or bookshop.org. I want to ask, because I know sometimes people like to, do so with it and COVID and different things hinder your typical public appearances that people would do with books. Is there a site they can go to if they want to get a particular signed copy of your book? Absolutely. So I have a website, which is DebraGoodrichRoyce.com, all lowercase, and you can contact me. There's a, <clears throat> you know, a contact thing and just email me. So oh, there's if, also a, a bookstore in Rhode Island that I stop by a lot and sign copies, and it's called the Savoy, S-A-V-O-Y, and they have a website and you can call them. So if you happen to be in the Rhode Island area, check them out as well. I'll get a link for that with all the outlets of this conversation. Deborah, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Excuse me! This is Vicki Guerrero, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. 